You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From Little League Baseball to the majors, the journey for every ball player is unique. Join us for an in-depth journey as we learn about the men of the green and gold and what defined their journey to the top. These are their stories. And Trevino to the plate. And swung on and miss, and Lou Trevino strikes out the side. This is the path chasing the MLB dream. The sound is unmistakable. The velocity coming off the arm of the six foot five fireballer in Green Lane, Pennsylvania is undeniable. Good fastball. Add in the knee buckling cutter that has deceived hitters since his debut. Quickly, you have the beginnings of an emerging star, a hidden gem in a bullpen full of live arms. This might seem like the story of a highly touted prospect from a baseball hotbed. Instead, this is the story of Lou Trevino, the Oakland A's reliever. Many know him as the hard-throwing right-hander who sets up games for Liam Hendricks and the A's bullpen. What isn't known is the journey. The hours, the toil, the labor. How Lou Trevino got from the post-workout, pastry-eating. I love cake. I love pie. I love donuts. Alcorn mashing. House flipping six-foot-five Pennsylvanian to the major leagues. Join us now on the path chasing the MLB dream with Lou Trevino. Green Lane, Pennsylvania isn't the kind of place you expect to find a major leaguer. To find a six-foot-five fireballer here among the 507 people who call it home would be unlikely. Green Lane is little over an hour from Philadelphia, the closest major city in Pennsylvania. You know, growing up, my three favorite players to watch were Jim Tomey because he would absolutely demolish baseballs and then watching uh, Mariano Rivera pitch. I just loved I loved how calm and collected he was. I know, you know, I know there's a lot of, you know, let let the kids play, let them show emotion and scream and yell after a save. But for me growing up, watching Mariano Rivera come up in a huge situation and, and get, get out of a jam or save the game and then just walk off the mound like he's done it before, to me that, that, that's, that's awesome. I don't really show too much emotion on the mound just because I used to watch Mariano Rivera and I loved I loved how how he pitched and and how he acted like he he's, he's done 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 whatever he did before. So, you know, Mar- Mariano Vera, Kerry Wood, Jim Tomey were my three favorite players growing up. And I know growing up I was really close with family members. And I think it was just it's, I don't think I, I realized it at the time. As I grew up and I heard you know how other people experienced their childhood, I was very thankful. You know, looking back, how family oriented we are and how much time I was able to spend with. Uh, people in my life that mean a lot to me. As just about any warm-blooded Pennsylvania schoolboy would tell you, football was Lou's first love. But the script was flipped in the Trevino household by the elder statesman, Lou's father, Lewis. Lou played baseball, I would say, when he was like four or five years old. And uh, one day he says, hey, Dad, I really want to play football. I said, okay, Lou, you know, I'll sign you up. <laughs> I came back and I said, 
Lou, I signed you up for baseball instead of football. Maybe one of the more devastating times of my life was when he came back after telling me that he was going to sign me up for Pee Wee football, that he came back and said, Lou, I signed you up for Little League instead. I, I, I don't think I've still to this day forgiven him. With the football helmets and shoulder pads in memory, Lou turned his attention to a different backyard sport, baseball, and specifically pitching. In the family's backyard, Lou's father, Lewis, said the neighbors would marvel over the sounds outside the house. I can tell you, as a little kid, this kid, I mean, we set up uh, nets outside, uh, you know, because I don't have a big shop or somewhere where he can throw in, indoors. But we put a net out there between two trees, and he would be out there constantly just throwing the ball and constantly throwing that ball. And then it's kind of funny because when my neighbor said something, like he goes, you know, I remember your son being out there with a – bat or wiffle ball or something with the and he was hitting i used to tell him just to keep himself busy around here get some acorns put a big pile there throw it up and see if you can hit it sure enough he'd be out there for about two three hours just washing the acorns hitting them and you hear this thing going right over the house and then my neighbor comes over and says you know i missed that and i said what are you talking about he goes one day i was out there and i'm hearing these weird sounds and he goes, I look over and I see your son just hitting the acorns all over the woods. He goes, now I miss it. Although Lou told his side of the story and doesn't believe the neighbors missed those unmistakable sounds. It was fun to see how far I could hit him. Granted, you know, my dad got mad at me while I would hit his truck or I would hit one off the window of the house. So then I had to do it the other way and then I was hitting some of the neighbors. So it was kind of one of those, I, I, I highly doubt the, the neighbors would use the word miss. They were probably annoyed hearing ding, ding, and knowing that it was coming from a, a wiffle ball bat and, and, and not a tree. During his youth, Lou's mother knew there was something special about the boy in the backyard, whether it was his ability to hit the wiffle ball over the house or something else entirely. I think it was when he was five because, let me tell you something, when you put a ball in his hand, he was out there, Mom, Dad, can we go out and throw the ball? Can we go out and throw the ball? And that's all he wanted to do. And then when we bought him a, a wiffle bat and ball, he was out there, okay, throw it to me, throw it to me. And this kid, we we live in a two-story colonial, and this kid could hit a, a wiffle ball over the house at five. From a town of 507 to a K-12 through school like Upper Bucks Christian, and its enrollment of just 216, Lou again had a tight-knit community, much like the town he grew up in. Upper Bucks Christian was also the same school Lou's mom had went to a generation earlier, and just like she graduated with a class of 21, Lou's class was just 19. While playing baseball at Upper Bucks Christian, Lou also played soccer and basketball, but baseball was always number one. Lou's father recalled his son's active recruitment of teammates to field a baseball team at Upper Bucks Christian. He had to beg people to play baseball, and it was like he, he was so upset because we thought we weren't going to have a baseball team probably in 10th, 11th, and 12th because there's hardly any boys. But he would scrounge them up. They would play. And the only thing is, at, at high school, you you know, most people have high school kids. You have to, you know, you have to uh, try out for the team. <laughs> Upper Bucks, we just look for kids that they play. Lou lettered in all three sports he played, and his size and skill put him on the radar early. At just 14, the Philadelphia Phillies and the Los Angeles Angels were already looking at him. He was getting looked at from the Phillies. And when he went to high school, we had approximately like four scouts come out to see him. And we also had the Angels come out to see him. So they all show up, all in these 
dark uniforms, you know, with sunglasses, slick hair back. And, uh, and then all of a sudden, um, they're looking, they, they asked to look around the school. I'm like, we're going, uh-oh, what's going on here? Well, they wanted, to, they wanted to talk to the strength coach. They wanted to see the gym. Well, with a small school, we don't have a weight room. We don't have, and we have a very small field. And then they turn around and says, look, we love the kid. He throws hard and everything, but we think he, he would be best to go to college. And then hopefully he'll get drafted, he says. But the Phillies, are, they were looking at him ever since he was 14 years old. You know, he'd be playing in a game here and there, and a scout would come up to us and say, hey, he has potential. Well, okay, then you think that still might just be a, a, a statement, but he might have a shot. As a high school standout, Lou threw a no-hitter where he struck out 19 and another game where he went seven innings with 22 strikeouts. The most memorable game was the 22 strikeout game because, you know, our catcher dropped the third strike, and he was so upset himself. He's like, hey, I'm sorry, Lou. I'm like, no, no, no it's fine. I, I want another strikeout. You know, so it was, all, it was all good for me. I didn't realize I did it until until at the end of the game when, when my coach told me that. The six foot five kid had something special. But deep within his personality, after the wins and the accolades, was the same young man who believed in his school, teammates, and his family. The ultimate team guy is that common expression thrown around in baseball, but according to Andrew Marcus, who covered Lou in high school, it was evident then. Uh, I would say I would say he was he was really hard on himself and he always like strived for perfection. He had big dreams at a young age. He always envisioned himself working hard enough to make it to the pros. And so what we would we would say was like a, a dominant performance. He always found a way to tweak to to kind of like either be humble or just kind of like try to bring the light back to the team and um, and not really you know shine down on him. As high school started to wrap up, Lou had several college options to choose from locally. The family weighed the decisions like they do most of the time together i would say like 15 20 colleges called but seton hall was really one of the uh main people to uh knock on our door to see if it's possible you know if he would go to the, that college but he ended up going to slippery rock because uh, he really liked it there he liked the coach once lou settled on slippery rock university the only question was how often his parents could make the five plus hour trip well just weekends we would go weekends, and a lot of times we would drive the, you know, five, five and a half hours up, and then we would go back home after the game. When they get to college, it's just really hard. Yeah, there's no way we could have made every game. Finding Lou tucked away in Green Lane made the recruiting side difficult for coaches. But luckily, Jeff Messer from Slippery Rock figured it out. Eastern PA, Eastern Pennsylvania, is just a hotbed, you know, for baseball players. I mean, you, I don't know. You can go on your records and see, but in the ACC and the FCC, you know, there's dozens of, of players from the eastern part of the state. Uh, maybe because it's populated so much, not sure, but, um, you know, there's so many good baseball players. So a lot of times it's not like right next door. It's a five-hour, at least four-and-a-half, five-hour trip for us to get out there to recruit. So we kind of, you know, we kind of leave it up to our alumni base. If anybody ever sees anybody, this or that. And we get a call uh, from one of my former players that says, hey, you know, my dad is still coaching Legion. And he has this kid that, you know, is, you know, 84, 86. And 
nobody's on and um, doesn't know if he's going to go to school for baseball, doesn't know what he's going to do. And, you know, long story short, you know, we get him, we get him to come out for a visit uh, at the end of his, I want to say the end of his junior year, maybe the fall of his, his, maybe the end of the summer is his junior year. So every, nobody has really still seen that much of him yet because he was playing Legion ball. And like I say, his high school was such a small school. But even then, he was a big kid. I mean, he was, you know, you know, six four, six five, um, And again, really hadn't been in travel ball, you know, hadn't got a lot of exposure. You know, it's pretty much just playing the Legion and playing for one of our former players that I knew his dad. I knew his dad for him playing here as well. And um, they were raving about him, you know, saying that, you know, he's, he's young and he's raw, but his arm, big kid, you know, and uh, great arm. And that's basically the, the first contact that we found out about him. And um, nobody else, you know, and it's pretty hard to miss, to miss Lou, but there's so many kids out there in the East. You know, he, uh, he got overlooked initially, um, and that's how we got in on him. And then, like say, the, you know, I think his senior year, senior summer, and then a lot more people took notice, but he had already decided he was coming to Slippery Rock, good for us, and that's how we initially, you know, got him to come to Slippery Rock. Lou himself said he felt the recruiting process was unusual, but he loved the campus at Slippery Rock when he visited. I never went to any showcases, so... I think I think that the Phillies were looking at me and the Angels were looking at me way before any colleges even knew, knew who, who I was because I only played Legion ball. I never played any um, any travel ball that that goes along. That that's kind of what's the norm for today. Um, so going into my what was it my uh, senior year, I think uh, that summer I didn't really have anyone. I didn't I didn't know of any colleges. I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I, I made a, a Legion showcase, and I, I did pretty well, and, and got a lot of uh, attention from a, a bunch of schools, and and we really botched our uh, our recruiting process. I mean, Beaton Hall was one of the first ones to contact me. Uh, it was awesome. And I say, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll come for a visit, and I just never visited. You know, like I don't know why, but I never did. And there's a bunch of other schools that came that that contacted me, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll visit here pretty soon, and we. And obviously, knowing what I know now, that was really dumb what I did. But I just assumed that, yeah, you know, I didn't know there was a timetable. I didn't know. I didn't really know anything. So we really uh, botched the uh, the whole recruiting process. But it ended up that I chose Slip Rock. I, I remember when I went out there. Uh, my my sister went to school out in Midwest. So on on the way back, I think we stopped there or, or something like that. And and I absolutely loved the school. And when I was uh, when I was being recruited, I was always told. I would go go to the school that if you weren't playing baseball, you would like to go to school there. And I, I really, you know, stepping on Slippery Rock campus, it's obviously out in the middle of nowhere, but it was a really nice campus. I, I really enjoyed the the Messers as as our as our coach. Um, it was just it was kind of one of those schools that I I really liked. I, I don't know why, but it was just it was one of those schools that I liked. Obviously, it was five and a half hours away, so it wasn't wasn't the most I deal when it came to travel for my parents because my there's a lot of nights that they spent driving back and forth watching games which you know is a testament to how much they they care and how much they supported me but uh yeah well, i just ended up choosing slippery rock and being a really good choice while slippery rock has an enrollment of nearly 7500 the small town feel of butler county pennsylvania suited lou well during his first year at slippery rock lou went four and one 
with a 2.53 ERA and 57 strikeouts in 53 and a third innings pitched. During the summer entering his sophomore year at Slippery Rock, Lou threw a no-hitter while pitching in the Atlantic Collegiate Baseball League. His coach at the time, Lee Savarino, talked about his performance after. I mean, he, he's been lights out for you guys. He's been a tremendous kid. I heard a lot of great things about him. I saw him in high school, yeah. uh, and I knew he was a good player, and he had a good year at Slippery Rock, and he's been everything as advertised. He's had a very good year. I think if he continues to develop, he could be a prospect. During that summer, Lou went 4-2 and two with Quakertown, had 50 strikeouts to go along with the no-hitter. Lee mentioned that he felt Lou could become a prospect, and Lou called it a blessing. It was cool to hear a guy that... You know, obviously, your ultimate goal is to make the make the big league. So, uh, to hear a guy who scouted with the Mets for such a long time and and, and knew baseball as well, as well as he did, for him to say that, I thought that was that was a blessing. I was, I was it was awesome. It was awesome to hear at the time. His sophomore campaign was even stronger. Lou went eight and three with a 1.78 ERA in 76 innings and six complete games. The one thing that was concerning to Lou's coach in college was his command. You know, initially, you know, Lou had some, uh, you know, at times would have some control problems. And he would, like his freshman, sophomore year, you know, he might, they wouldn't hit him. He might walk a batter or two and then strike out the side. Lou's third and final season at Slippery Rock was what put the big right-hander on the radar for many teams heading into the 2013 draft. The date was April 6, 2013 and Slippery Rock was ready to face number 25 Seton Hill in a conference showdown at home. Alex Haynes was on the mound for Seton Hill, who many viewed as a high draft pick at the time, and Lou was on the mound for Slippery Rock in what Jeff Messer calls Lou's coming out party. He had a game against Seton Hill uh, where the kid was supposed to go in the top 10, a lefty, um, you know, from Seton Hill, and, and Lou matched up against him and was just lights out. And, I mean, the other kid, I think we knocked out in, like, the second or third inning. Um, so the guys that had come to see the lefty that played in the Cape Cod League, you know, saw Lou um, and what he was doing, how effective he was. And um, so I think that is when, you know, not only Matt Higginson with the, the A's, but a number of other guys, you know, really took interest, you know, in him. One of the scouts in attendance that day was Matt Higginson from the A's, and he discussed what he saw in Lou. I remember the first time I saw him, it was like a terrible day to watch anybody perform. It was a very difficult day to evaluate. <laughs> I think it may, I don't know if it was snowing, but it was close. And um, I remember he pitched really well. Um, I saw him pitch at Slippery Rock and he, he was a really good competitor. He could really uh, sink the ball well. He had a really good sinker. It was like, you know, the velocity is nowhere near, wasn't what it is now. It was like, 89-92 in college when I saw him, but he could really sink it, and he had a really good changeup, and he'd show you a, a curveball uh, that showed some promise. That Davers, Alex Haynes, and Seton Hill meant a lot to Lou, and he acknowledged that game was special to him. That was the game that got me drafted, in, in a way. I, I had a really good sophomore year. I, I pitched well in, in, front of, uh, in front of scouts for scout day my, my junior year. I didn't know what to expect, and the next thing I know, you know, you got, you got a bunch of teams calling you. I know my, my coach thought, you know, maybe he'd be a 20th round guy. Again, we had no idea. And the next thing I know, I'm studying for exam, and, and my agent calls me. I know where that I have now. And he says, hey, you know, Lou, you're, you're, you know, your stock is high on the draft board. And, and then I end up signing him for, not signing, but he ended up being my advisor. And a bunch of teams contacted me. And then, 
and it was kind of one of those things where, all right, well, I, I gotta, I gotta throw really well for my junior year if I want to really make this thing happen. And I think I, I had a, a couple. I started off well my junior year, not not necessarily throwing hard. I think I was 89-91, but I threw well, and then I kind of had a couple games where I didn't do very well. And and then the the big one came up because it was myself and Alex. We were uh, we were the the two two guys in the league that that were getting looked at pretty heavily. I'm, you know, obviously there's there's Mesa back. There's a bunch of guys that that were looked at, but it was a kind of a key matchup. No one comes and see those games, especially in the freezing cold weather. You're like maybe we'll get a decent crowd in our last our last weekend when it's 60, 65 degrees and it's nice out. Then we get a decent crowd, but but up until then you get no one. You just get parents in the, in, in the stands, maybe a couple of girlfriends, and that's about it. Well, when you look and, and see 50 or 60 scouts there, it was one of the coolest feelings up up until up until that it was the coolest feeling I've ever had in my life just to see all those scouts and then you know well I remember when I was warming up you see like 20 radar guns going up it was just unbelievable and I was very very thankful that I ended up throwing well I, was, I threw the ball pretty hard uh, I was able to command both sides of the plate with with both my fastball and my off-speed pitch and off-speed pitches and and that was a pretty memorable game and and I, and a lot of people would say that was the game that got got me drafted exactly 2 months after his virtuoso performance against Seton Hill commissioner Bud Seeley began baseball's amateur draft Lou knew he had a shot but waiting as they say is the hardest part the whole entire process kind of sucked like it wasn't fun you know it was very and not fun in the fact that it was it was miserable it was more not fun in the fact that just stress out the wazoo like you know I was told that there's a really good chance I'm going the second day. So I'm sitting there, you know, you just watch the first day to watch. And then the second day you're like, all right, here we go. You know, this is, this is the day. And then, you know, I had all family over, we're sitting there watching and then crickets, absolutely nothing. And it was just, it was awful. It sucked. It wasn't much better for mom either. First of all, you know, the draft was coming up and you knew, you know, the first night, okay, he probably won't go, but you know, my parents came the first night. He had a great friend from Slippery Rock that came, and his cousins were here, and we all sat there, and we thought, okay, it isn't tonight. So then we all came back and did it over again for the next day, and we're like, okay, he didn't go the second day. Now we're getting scared, and my dad says, my dad told me, he goes, he's probably not going to get drafted. The date was June 8, 2013, and the third and final day of the MLB draft was set to begin, starting with the 11th round. Lou Trevino was still on the board after hearing he might go on day two. Matt Higginson was shocked that Lou didn't go on day two and detailed the process of taking Lou and his call to him after. Going into day three, to be honest with you, like like a lot of people liked him. Like a lot of teams liked him. So I knew there was a lot of competition on him. In my gut, I thought he would have went uh, day two, right? So, I mean, in the draft, you need a lot of, there's a lot that goes into it. Like you need a lot of breaks to kind of go your way. Um, in order for you to get a player, right? Like, so, um, so I just, I, re- I remember he didn't get taken day two, and I was kind of like, wow, like, man, Trevino's like, he's going to be a day three guy. Like, I was sort of surprised by that just because he was, he was so talented he, and he was good. And, you know, the numbers were there, everything was there, the physicality, all that stuff. And, um, so I remember for me, it was surprising seeing that he was, he was there day three. Before we go into the third day of the draft, we kind of, you know, we come up with like a list of basically the our, the guys in my area that I wanted or the top guys left, right? And um, 
my supervisor was uh, name is Mark Sauer. He was my supervisor that year. And so he said, Hey Matt, you know, like who, you know, who do we want going in tomorrow? And I said, you know, I'm like Lou, right? Like, I mean, he's, I can't believe he's, I can't believe he hasn't got taken yet. And, uh, and so, you know, fortunately, you know, uh, Mark had, had, um, you know, I had my back on that one and, uh, you know, it worked out. We took him in the 11th round. So, so yeah, so we ended up taking him, and then, uh, you know, I think I called him after, congratulated him. And then there's like a, you know, a short, you know, negotiation, I guess after that. Um, and then I flew down to Philadelphia and, uh, signed him and, you know, spent some time with him and his family. And then he got on a, got on a plane and went to Arizona. So, uh, it all happened pretty quickly within, you know, 72 hours, something like that, and uh, and he was on his way. Lou said the A's were one of the last teams he expected to select him, but is blessed he got selected where he did. I threw a bullpen that morning of, of uh, the third day, and uh, I remember Matt Higgins called me. Honestly, that was the first time I think I've ever talked to him. I might have said hi to him a couple times. The A's were one of the last teams that I ever thought would ever get, get me. I really had no clue. And then I remember I'm sitting there, you know, a bunch of picks go by. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, am I going to get drafted, you know? And then all of a sudden, it says Lou Trevino selected by, we didn't know at the time. We just heard Lou Trevino, and I had family in our living room. We all just freaked out. Pretty sure I almost dropped my plate of food that I had. I mean, I was going nuts. And then and then after about two minutes of, I, I blacked out for those two minutes. Then we all kind of look around and said, wait, who, who drafted you? So we had to look it up, and, and, and then we figured out, okay, it was the A's that drafted. And then my agent called me, and then, uh, and then Matt called me. And it, was, uh, it went from just stressful and hating life to just one of the happiest days of my life. It was just it kind of, it, you know, it's for the first-rounders that go right away, it's great. But the guys that got to sit there and, and suffer through everyone getting picked, and, and, you know, I was blessed to get, be picked where I got picked in the 11th round. You know, I didn't have to really wait that long, but it was just, it went from high stress, wondering if I'm even going to get drafted, to just pure joy, and, and it was just, it was, a, it was a cool experience. Just 66 days after pitching against Seton Hill, Lou Trevino was a major leaguer. Signed by the Oakland A's after being selected in the 11th round, Lou was sent to the Vermont Lake Monsters. That season at Vermont, he went 3-4, and four, with a 3.12 ERA in 14 games, and 10 of those were starts. A year later, Lou was assigned to the Beloit Snappers, and he went 7-11 with a 5.28 ERA in 27 games, 26 starts. The following season, Lou joined the Stockton Ports, went 10-5 with a 3.91 ERA in 32 games, but for the first time in his career, Lou was asked to relieve with only nine starts that season in Stockton. The switch from a starter to reliever is something Lou looks back on, thankfully. I just want to first say I'm very thankful for the A's because I know my first two seasons, except for I had a decent short season, my first full season and halfway through my uh, second full season, I was terrible. I mean, every night I was icing my neck because I would snap to see where that ball was being hit. I mean... I had a. I remember there was someone saying, "Oh, hey, you're you're hitting the ball really well." I was like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "Oh yeah, I read your stats. You're hitting 280, and I think you had 13 or 14 home runs." And I said, "Uh, uh opponents are hitting 280 off me. 
and I gave up 14 home runs. And he's like, oh. So, like, it definitely was not good for me. I, I struggled um, mightily as a starter um, and then struggled even more my second year. And, uh, and I was very – again, I'm very thankful for the A's because any other team – would have said, all right, well, you know, we had, we tried, he's not good enough, smell you. And, uh, and it, and thankfully they decided to throw me in the bullpen before, uh, before, you know, anything else. And and I ended up doing really, you know, a lot better in the bullpen and, and, you know, the rest is history. One thing that was noticeable about Lou during this time was that his fastball would top out around 92 to 95 miles per hour as a starter. And then once he got moved to the bullpen, it all changed for him. I always knew I threw hard. You know, I always knew I had it in me. So the first year I get drafted, I think that first year I touched 95 the first year in uh, short season A, and then it, and the velocity qu- quickly went down. And then and then I worked hard in the offseason. In my first spring training game, I was 90, 94 to 96. And then after that, velocity continued to dwindle to where I, was, I would average 88, not 90. So I was the guy that I was never satisfied. You know, like I would have a great game, but I'm all right. I'm not throwing hard. I know I can throw harder. So I'm not satisfied. I'm changing something. I can't tell you how many, how many guys would say, hey, Lou, you got to realize you're just an 88 to 92 mile an hour guy. You just got to deal with that and see how you can gain success. That. And I, I refuse to, to believe that. I was always that guy that was, that was always looking to try and get better because I knew that I could throw harder. And, um, and, and so I, you know, I, I think my last couple, couple outings as a starter, I got as low as like 85, 88. I mean, I was not throwing hard, my arm hurt. And then, uh, and then I got put in the bullpen and my, my velocity, you know, uptick just a little bit. I think I was 89, 91, I, you know, touch 92, maybe 93 every once in a while if I didn't throw for a while, but you know, nothing crazy. And then I remember... Again, I was a guy that always that always um, was messing around with, with mechanics. I always watch people, you know, trying. You know, I still do that. I, I still look around to see who the hard, who the hardest throwers are, who has the best this or that, and then I try and mimic. And I remember one day, and I was in uh, the Stockton Ports bullpen, and it was kind of the point to where, like, look, I, I, I'm throwing decent, but like, I I, I got to figure it out, or else, you know, I'm, I'm not not going to be long for this game. And I, I remember I was uh, earlier I was going over video and then watching myself throw, trying to figure out what's going on, and uh, and then I was watching Ray Black throw, and at the time he was anywhere from 99 to 105 or 104 or something stupid, like just throwing absolute pellets. And I was just kind of mentally comparing him and myself, and I realized he was doing something that I wasn't, and I'm going to try it, and. So I went from one outing, 88, 91, maybe 92, and the very next outing I was 94 to 95. And I remember before the outing, I remember telling my dad, I called my dad right before the outing. I said, Dad, if I pitch today, I'm hitting 95 today. He's like, all right. He's like, Lou, I don't want to hear about it. I want to see it. I said, all right. I promise you, I'm hitting 95 today. And I remember warming up. This was in Modesto where they, they had the uh, one of the only ones with an accurate um, – pitch uh, radar gun. Most most um, most minor league stadiums have, if they have radar guns, it's off, or it's either really hot or really slow. So, But I happened to be pitching Modesto, and I remember the first pitch I threw 
nice and easy was 91. And, oh, my gosh, it felt so good. And I didn't even try. I'm like, here we go. This is the day. I remember my first pitch I threw was 95. I was so excited. Um, I had a great game. Stuff was good. And then I remember my next out, I said, Dad, I'm telling you, I'm hitting 97. This is the day I'm hitting 97. He's like, hey, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told you last time. Don't tell me. Came out there, again, in Modesto. I was 94-97. And then uh, I, had, I finished up well that year in 2015. After his season with the Stockton Ports, Lou started working with Mike Connors, who works at the Tri-State Elite Baseball Academy. So this was, I started working with him um, after his high A season. He actually just got transitioned to being a reliever. Um, as a starter, he was like 86, 88. Um, Slippery Rocky up to 94. He was just in high age struggling. And he got moved to the bullpen, top to 94, maybe 95 that year. Um, we just reworked his delivery, um, just a little more rotational. And then he was just kind of driving, really no scap load. Um, arm action needed help. So we just kind of did a full-on makeover for him. I got back home. And I, I was working with Mike Connors, and we kind of really, I really kind of buckled down because I, I mean, I tell this to people, but I'm, I'm, I'm very driven more now than I ever have been. Um, I used to be the guy that, yeah, I'd work hard. Yeah, I think I'd eat okay. You know, I wouldn't really care too much, but, you know, it's all about baseball. And then I, I realized that I, I didn't want to be the, the guy that told his kids or his grandkids, hey, I, I could have if I wasn't lazy. I could have could have done this I could have been this good but you know I, I didn't do this and I realized like I don't want to be that guy I'm going to give everything I got so I, I got on a diet I started lifting every single day doing something continue to work on my uh, uh, what, what I was working on when, when it came to uh, throwing harder and and I remember I got to spring training in 2016 I, I, I lost a bunch of weight I was a lot leaner um, and they told me, they said, all right, you know, you really thrived in the, in the long relief um, role. So I think we're going to keep you in the long relief role. I said, okay, that's fine. And then my very first outing, I was 97-99. Granted, I think I threw three strikes. But I was 97-99. And, and immediately, they're like, all right, you're going to be a closer. I said, oh, all right. And then, and then it, you know, it kind of took a little bit to, to figure out how to throw strikes just because of how I was throwing it kind of, it's very different than everyone else, obviously, but I, I kind of I buckled down and, and uh, I was able to make uh, uh, make some adjustments and, and I am here where I am today. After his change from starter to reliever, Lou made his way through Midland and eventually up to AAA Nashville. As his performances continued to impress, the idea of a kid from Green Lane becoming a major leaguer seemed to become more and more realistic. On April 17, 2018, Lou got the call no kid from a town that small could dream of. Lou Trevino, the kid who threw baseballs in the backyard with his dad, was a major leaguer. Big, tall right-hander, Lou Trevino, 11th round pick of the East. Swing and a miss. Good fastball. Swing and a miss. High octane at 98. First K for Trevino. Two pitch. Oh, three with two outs, the runners move. The pitch breaking ball, strike three called. Freezes him with the curve, and the game is over. It was it was surreal. Um, you know, I, I knew I knew it was probably going to come at some point. I didn't realize it was going to come that fast. I always joke like I would have loved to spend a little more time in Nashville, <laughs> just because uh, um, I, I had a really nice apartment. But anyway, 
I think I, I got a call. We were, I think we were headed to Des Moines, I believe. And, uh, and Fran, my manager called me and said, Hey, uh, make sure you bring your, your game bag. Cause usually how it goes is you pack your game bag and then the, and the, the clubbies take it from you and then it gets shipped out. You know, you don't ever deal with any of your gloves or any, you don't deal with the bag that deals that has all the, the gloves and, and, and your, your, your equipment. And it's all kind of taken for you. And, and the thing is you don't take that bag. It's it's taken for you. So when Fran told me, Hey, you might, you might want to take that bag with you. I kind of, I'm like, okay. I remember I called my dad and said, look, I don't know if I'm getting called up, but there's a really good chance to get called up. And he said, oh, okay, that's, that's kind of cool. So he's like, why, why don't you let, just just let me know. I said, okay. So I land, and then there's nothing. I talked to Fran. He's like, all right, well, I'll see you tomorrow. I was like, oh, all right. You know, so I'm sitting there, lug around my ace bag, the only one lug around the ace bag, and I have my personal bag, so whatever. And I remember I went out to get pizza with Bobby Wall at, like, 12 o'clock at night, and I get a call from Fran saying, hey, uh, I want to tell you this in person, but since you're obviously at a pizza shop, I just want to let you know you're going to get called up tomorrow. Your flight leaves at 6 or 7 or whatever it was. And, I mean, it was just one of the coolest feelings. You know, obviously, I was just ecstatic. Uh, I called called my pops, called mom and dad, obviously. Um, I called my sister, even though she I knew she was asleep. Uh, I, I called, called a few people. And then, uh, obviously, I could not sleep at all. I got up, got up early, flew out to Oakland, and then Bowmel told me, "Hey, you know, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna kind of easy into it." And um, and then I ended up pitching that night, and it was just, I remember because Bobby made his debut the year before, and and he was telling me, "Hey, he's a little. I just want to warn you, you're." You're going to feel great warming up, but once you get out there, it's going to be different. I'm like, ah, whatever. You know, I'll be fine. And I felt great warming up, and I walked out there. It just felt like felt like someone attached two-pound cement blocks to my uh, – or not two-pound, like 100-pound cement blocks to my feet. <laughs> I mean, my feet were so heavy. I was breathing hard. I mean, and, and then – course the very first pitch i paint at the black on the outside corner for a ball i'm like all right i guess this is how it's gonna go and uh and then i kind of get get out of the the bases loaded jam and then and then the very next day i can't sleep and then we have a day game and i know there's no chance i throw you know i just threw 35 pitches uh no chance i throw and then all of a sudden the 11th inning comes up and it's still tied and I'm looking, looking around. It's just myself and Ryan Dole, and I know he's not throwing. I'm like, uh-oh, I might, I might be in this one. And then I end up throwing three innings and throwing really well. It was just, it was a, it was a great experience because that clearly could have gone a lot differently. Having bases loaded with one out and uh, and a three-one count for my debut, and then. And then you know, throwing three innings the next day, it was a, it was, it was a blessing. I was very thankful that it all worked out well. In his MLB debut, Lou pitched an inning, allowing two hits, walking one, and striking out two. The very next day, versus the White Sox, he got his first MLB win in a game where he saw the starter in him come out as he pitched three innings, allowing two hits, and struck out four. Lou got his first big league save on June 8, 2018, in a game where he went an inning and a third and struck out two. One ball and two strikes. And the pitch on the way. And swung out and missed on a breaky ball down and in. 
The A's have taken two straight over Kansas City. That's the first big league save for Lou Tremino. Lou went on to have a strong rookie season going 8-3, a 2.92 ERA in 69 games. The most memorable outing for Lou in his rookie season came October 3, 2018 in the American League wildcard game versus the New York Yankees. The A's fell down 2-0 early. Now McCutcheon takes his lead, and the 2-1 pitch to Judge is hit to deep left. Way back, Martini will turn and watch, and the Yankees take a 2-0 lead. And Lou replaced Liam Hendricks to start the top of the second inning. Lou went on to pitch three scoreless innings, striking out four to help keep the game close for the Athletics. Here's the one-two delivery, and a breaking ball swung on a miss, and a great job by Trevino. Aaron Judge down 0-2, and a swing and a miss. Trevino wipes him out. Swing and a miss, slow curve, and the dirt gets away momentarily from Lucroy at a 1-2-3 inning. So Trevino retires eight in a row to close out his three innings of relief for the A's here in New York. The A's went on to lose the game 7-2, and their season was over, but Lou reflected on the outing and called it one of his greatest experiences. Well, baseball, I know everyone says it's different, you know, and, and you, you, you believe them, obviously, but then to experience playoff baseball, it is just, it's a different experience. It's just regular season and, and playoff, playoffs just don't really compare all that much. Man, the fans, it's like a game. Every inning's a game, you know. The fans, fans are, are, are into every single pitch. Um, I know in Yankee Stadium it was so loud, uh, and then to, I think I started off, started off, I think Didi, I gave up a hit to Didi, and uh, and walked. I can't remember who I walked. And I'm like, okay, and I, I remember I looked in the bullpen to see who was warming up, and there was no one warming up. I'm like, oh boy, I, I better figure this one out here pretty soon. And uh, and then Emo came out, kind of calmed me down, and then I was able to kind of dial it in and then have the outing that I had, and it was, it was a, a very surreal moment. Just And, and again, there's, there's nothing quite like having Yankee Stadium as loud as can be, and then after that double play and strikeout, just silence. It was, that was one of the cooler experiences. As 2019 dawned, the idea of Trevino continuing his meteoric rise seemed inevitable. But life tends to have different plans for all of us, and Lewis forced to deal with new challenges off the field as he prepared for 2019. My my in-laws and my parents, none of them were sports people. They never watched professional sports and they didn't care about professional sports. But let me tell you something, both sides now just can't wait for the games and they actually know what's going on. And his, um, my husband's mom just loved loved baseball. She loved watching him, and she passed away uh, January 29th. And I remember Lewis didn't want to go to fan day. And we said, you know, just go. Everything will be fine. And then we had to tell him that Saturday night that she passed away. So that was really hard. But he kind of just, when he plays, um, he wears a necklace that um, his his pop had with a T on it, and he just wears that because, you know, they gave that to him. It's just sad because she would have loved to have been here to watch him. But Nana, we called her Nana, she and she was like four foot two. He would stand there and rest his elbow on her head. That was their thing, right? Um, she would have felt really bad if he missed that. 
because of her. So she wanted him to go. Lou's 2019 season started strong, and despite some of the early challenges, he still appeared in 61 games for the green and gold, fifth most among the A's pitchers. One common theme among those close to him was how driven Lou is and how hard he works. We pushed him, so I think his work ethic comes from that he had to improve, right? Because (laughs) we were always pushing him to play, and he's always told us, if it wouldn't have been for you guys, I probably would have quit a long time ago. And I think behind every great player, you have, you know, one or two parents behind them, pushing them and making sure they get to where they have to be. He's constantly trying to improve himself. I mean, he works very hard. And like I said, I'm in construction. He helps me a lot. We lay blocks. It's very strong. And uh, I think he's going to have a heck of a year this year. Lou is driven. I mean, he was uh, even, you know, when he was here, whether he was a freshman you know, and it really, there wasn't really a label freshman, sophomore, junior for, for, for Lou because um, probably the hardest working pitcher that we've ever, you know, ever had here. And I've been here 35 years. From a childhood dream to a major league reality, Lou Trevino has come to symbolize much of the same characteristics as the team he plays for. Hardworking, scrappy, and resilient. Lou Trevino, his family, his friends, and his community built him into the man he is today. His path to the major leagues was built on character, and the A's fans get to see it every day. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.